Good evening, everyone. This evening's reading is taken from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 19. And this can be found on page 1054 of your church Bibles. And that's Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests look for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them but they were afraid of the people thank you it'll be a great help if you can keep luke chapter 20 uh, open in front of you we're going to be diving into it uh, together as we do that uh, i want to ask you a question Uh, what are you reading at the moment uh, of course, the correct answer to that is your book, Nick. But um, uh, statistically speaking, it's pretty likely that you have a, a, a book on the bedside table that's by a, a small handful of authors. Uh, the, um, particularly in terms of uh, fiction, uh, the, the market is pretty saturated by, by a, a pretty small number of people. I, for instance, am currently uh, falling asleep after about two pages of John Grisham. <laughs> uh, but um, in, in Britain, there are about 20 authors whose books have sold over 100 million copies. That's in British history. Now, some of those are people like Shakespeare, 
Uh, he didn't sell that in his lifetime. But there's a small group of about 10, perhaps, whose, whose work has sold so well uh, that uh, it's gone over the 100 million mark during their lifetime. I wonder who, who you think uh, those writers might be. I'm not going to ask you to shout out. That would be uh, crazy. But um, if you were to say J.K. Rowling, you'd be absolutely right. She's actually sold half a billion copies of her Harry Potter series. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, used to live just up the road from me in, in Oxford, sold 500 million, maybe 600 million. Astonishingly, there is actually a school in the parish where I just served uh, in Edgbaston, King Edward's the Sixth School, uh, from which two of those 100 million author, million selling authors came. That is really, really Strange. Uh, one of them was Tolkien. The other you may well have heard of too. His name, uh, well, his pen name is Lee Child, and he's sort of still writing. Uh, Lee Child um, received very much the same education as Tolkien and hit on very much the same idea. Uh, so he developed this character called Jack Reacher. Yes, I can, you're mouthing it along with me. It's amazing. Now, uh, Reacher is such a kind of popular, uh, I want to say literary, but that's perhaps not quite the right word, uh, but fictional character, uh, that there are all kinds of spin-offs. There was uh, a, 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 what I would say is a rather ill-judged uh, film starring Tom Cruise. Uh, Reacher is uh, supposed to be six foot six uh, and built like a monster, and uh, Tom Cruise is famously diminutive. Uh, but um, there's also an Amazon series that came out last year, which features a much more convincingly large man and, and much more convincing violence, which may well be a reason to stay away from it for, for, for some of us. But the idea of Jack Reacher is basically this. He exists on the margin, margins of society. He was a, a military policeman. He had to leave. And he just travels around. He carries nothing with him except his bank card and his toothbrush. But wherever Reacher goes, it seems, he encounters situations that need his special kind of help. And what that is, his special kind of help, tends to be that he comes across uh, a, a situation in which there's a, a small uh, group of people who are powerless and vulnerable, who are being exploited by a much larger, much more powerful group of people who seem to have all the cards in their hand until Reacher turns up. And he's kind of like an avenging angel. He brings justice where it seems justice because the police are corrupt or inept or powerless can never be done. And the sales tell a story, don't they? A hundred million copies sold. It's a billion dollar empire, the Jack Reacher empire. Why say? Well, I want to suggest that it's because in every human heart there is a yearning for justice. A yearning that the powerful should not go unpunished when they crush the weak and the poor and the vulnerable under the heel of their boot. We yearn to see justice done for the oppressed. 
And in this fantasy world of Jack Reacher, that justice is done. Brackets, Reacher style. (laughs) It is so intoxicating. It's no surprise either. I wonder what you think J.K. Rowling and J.R.R. Tolkien have in common, having sold over a billion copies between them. I'll give you a clue. I don't think it's really wizards and elves. It's actually that both of them, although Tolkien in a much more nuanced and sophisticated way, have created this imaginary world in which there is a great battle between good and evil, which eventually good wins, even though it's against all the odds. Our hearts yearn for justice, for good to triumph. In a world where it feels as though good will not always triumph. And it is the human beings like us, with hearts like ours, who yearn for that, who buy the books that tell us those stories, that Jesus tells this parable, headed in my Bible as the parable of the tenants, beginning in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20. You heard it read a moment ago, but here's how the story goes. There's a man, he plants a vineyard. It's his, he does all the hard work. Planting the vineyard's the hard bit. But then he goes away and lets it out to tenants. After a while, he says, perhaps I could have some of the fruit. But the tenants send his messenger away empty-handed. He sends another one, and that servant is beaten and treated shamefully. He sends a third, who's wounded and thrown out. So finally, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? How can I write this? How can I get them to know that I'm serious? How can I get them to pay? They're not taking my servants seriously. I know what I'll do. I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, let's kill him. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So Jesus asks a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do then? To the people who have defrauded him, have failed to pay him rents, have treated his servants abominably and now murdered his son, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, says Jesus, and he will kill those tenants. And he will give the vineyard to others. And everyone who's ever read a Jack Reacher book goes, come on. That's justice. That's what should happen. 
And that's what Jesus hearers do too, isn't it? Look at it. When the people heard this, they said, God, what? God forbid. It is absolutely obvious what should happen, isn't it? Jesus' story makes perfect sense. And yet his hearers say, no. Actually, we don't want justice in this situation. Now, that's a surprise, isn't it? Why? Well, there are some... There are some hints in the story. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is telling a story about a vineyard. That is how repeatedly, particularly when speaking about judgment, God speaks about his people in the Old Testament. It's there in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. You can look it up later. But God sings a lament over his vineyard that he planted that will not produce fruit for him and warns his people that he will come in judgment. In 1 Kings chapter 21, the wicked king of Israel, Ahab, sets his sights on a vineyard belonging to a man named Naboth, who won't give it up because he believes uh, rightly in terms of Israelite law that this is his inheritance given to him by God, And he is not at liberty to sell it to the king. So Ahab has Naboth killed. And what happens is that he is thrown out of his vineyard and killed in just the same words that Jesus uses. And God sends his prophet Elijah to prophesy judgment on King Ahab. And on Israel. So this is not just any story in which Jesus happens to choose a vineyard. This is a story about judgment. Coming on the people of God. Because they have rejected God's son. You see in the story so far in chapter 9. When Jesus goes up a mountain with his friends and is transfigured. And his glory is revealed to them for a moment. He is talking with Moses and Elijah about his journey to Jerusalem, which is about to begin, and his departure for heaven. And from that point on, from chapter 9 in Luke's gospel onwards, Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. And Luke keeps telling us Jesus was going to Jerusalem and makes it clearer and clearer that he was going there so that he could be rejected and die. And then in chapter 19, he arrives in Jerusalem and is greeted with words from Psalm 118, from which Catherine drew her prayers this evening. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Just the kind of royal proclamation that we've been hearing today. There is a king coming to his kingdom. But Jesus knows what's coming. Verse 41. 
as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus speaks to a people who should welcome him as king, but they will not have him. To start with, it looks like the crowd want him, but the teachers of the law are not so sure. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and that's where this whole story that Jesus tells come from, comes from. They say to Jesus, by what authority do you teach here like this? Who gave you the right? Who died and made you king? And so Jesus exposes their dishonesty by asking them a question. I will answer your question, but only if you can tell me about John's baptism. This great figure who baptized people in the Jordan. People flocked to him. He was a great teacher. Now, his ministry, did it come from heaven or was it of earthly origin? That is, did it come from God? Or was he just speaking on his own authority? And the teachers of the law go off and they confer and they realize that they can't answer that question. Because, he, the, well, look with me. If we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stain us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. We can't win because either way we'll be exposed. Exposed to public fury if we reject John and public ridicule if we accept him. The very nature of their conversation should have revealed to them how deep their spiritual problem really was. At no point did they consider the actual question, which is, was John from God? Should we have accepted his ministry? Well, if the answer to that was yes, then something had to change for them. And if the answer was no, then as the leaders of the people who spoke to the people in God's name, then surely they should have had the courage to say, no, it was not from God. But though they are God's spokespeople, though they see themselves as the wardens of spiritual truth, they don't care about God at all. They're only interested in their own reputations and their own skins. But the reaction in verse 15 In which the people say, or verse 16 rather, in which the people say, God forbid to Jesus plea for justice. His explanation of why it is that God will judge his people. Suddenly that comes too close to home. And they say no. We love justice. Until it comes calling for us.
See, here's the thing I think Jesus really puts his finger on in this moment in Luke's gospel. You and I are much more complicated than we think we are. We are filled with good and right moral intuitions. So often we know good from evil and rejoice in good and hate evil. But at a deeper level, we hate good. We reject the God who made us. The God who is the source of all goodness. And the Bible tells us that's not just one or two of us in this room tonight. That is all of us. Because that is what sin is. That short word in the Bible with I in the center is a word that points to our turning away from our creator and in on ourselves, putting ourselves in his place. And Jesus will call on each one of us and say, that's you. Here's what the queen had to say about it. Although we're capable of very great acts of kindness... History teaches us that we are sometimes, that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness and our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher or a general, as important as those are, but a savior with the power to forgive. It's fascinating, isn't it? She had that insight. We need saving, not from something out there, from something in here. And what's so brilliant about what Jesus does here is he shows us that our religion can every bit as much be a way of pushing God out of our lives as our obvious acts of rebellion. There are some people, it's obvious they hate God, isn't it? Because they'll tell you. Or at least they hate the idea that he could exist. That's pretty straightforward. Fair enough. But there are many of us whose lives tell that story, even as we proclaim ourselves and perhaps believe ourselves to be servants of the living God. When it comes to it, we don't want a savior. We don't want Jesus. We hear that story and say, no, there must be another way. Don't let judgment come. But this is what Jesus does. He looks them in the eye and he says, in that case, what is the meaning of this? And he quotes again, Psalm 118, the psalm that has been quoted to him as he comes into Jerusalem. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You and I didn't need Jack Reacher. We didn't need a king who would ride into town and drive out all the baddies. We needed a king who would come and die in our place. And it's quite possible that you really hate hearing that. 
They actually think, no, I'm fine. I'm one of the goodies. Look at what happens with the teachers of the law. Who faced with this, faced with Jesus' lacerating, laser sharp, understanding of who they were. Who could then and there have fallen on their knees and repented and, and said, you've come in the name of the Lord. You are the king. Instead, this is what they do. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. For a long time, I believed that the people who crucified Jesus did so because they didn't know who he was. In this parable, Jesus tells us, no. They crucified him because they knew exactly who he was. This is the son. Let's kill him. Unless you understand that that same motivation sits in your heart, you will never really know joy in the Christian life. I was a very pious teenager. After I became a Christian, I went to lots of Bible studies, the North Oxford equivalent of KO. We had a great youth leader, the North Oxford equivalent of Stephen Dimitriou. He taught me the Bible. We read it together one-to-one. And by the time I arrived at university, I was well-briefed. I knew to introduce myself to people pretty much by holding out my hand and saying, Hi, my name's Nick and I'm a Christian. Get it in early. Make sure people know. That way you're not tempted to compromise. I was going great guns in the Christian Union. I was leading my hall group. It was all going so well. People looked up to me. They admired me. I could explain the gospel to you in 30 seconds if the plane was going down. And then I suddenly realized how empty I was. I had a time of massive spiritual crisis. I could scarcely bear to be alone in a room. I was just terrified of God because I realized that I was all show. I didn't pray unless there was someone else for me to pray with. I didn't read my Bible unless there was someone else for me to instruct in its ways. I talked about God, but I didn't love him. And so, despite the fact that it was very out of character for me, I eventually became so desperate that I booked to go and see a Christian counsellor. And I turned up late one evening at a church in Birmingham that had a counselling service. I'd arranged to meet this person. I got there, I I went into reception and I uh, announced that I was here to see such and such. And the person I spoke to looked rather confused and I discovered why. Such and such was double booked and was supposed to be at a PCC meeting, which as we all know is much more important. 
So such and such looked very embarrassed and said, maybe we can arrange another time. And I was desperate and I said, no. I need to see you tonight. So he said, fine, well, if you, if you go and wait, we'll talk after the PCC meeting is finished. So they put me in a room. I think they used it to store chairs and unwanted teenagers. And, um, and I sat in there and it was the days before mobile phones. And what on earth was I going to do with my time? And I reached into my coat pocket and I found a book of sermons from a Christian conference called Word Live. It was from the first ever one. I'd never cracked the spine. I liked to be the kind of person that had something like that on me. I didn't really have the energy to read it. But now I had no choice. So I looked through the index and I found a sermon, a talk, by someone I knew I was supposed to admire. His name was Dick Lucas. He was the rector at the time of St. Helens Church, Bishopsgate in London. And it was a sermon, it was a sermon on Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is the psalm that David prayed after he was found out having committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. And confronted by the prophet Nathan, the sins of his heart laid bare. David prays, prays this incredible psalm of repentance. He no longer tries to hide. He no longer tries to pretend that he is good enough on his own. He says to God, I have sinned against you. And he cries out to him, not for justice, but for mercy. And the sermon that Dick Lucas had preached and that was written down in this book was... In one sense, I imagine fairly run-of-the-mill, but it was also extraordinary. And there was this moment in it where he said, the person who has understood the message of this psalm will be content never to be anything more than a sinner saved by God's grace. And in that moment, it was like the lights came on in fact, the lights did come on and so-and-so came back in and I said, you are too late. <laughs> because you see, my crisis had melted away. I'd spent ages beginning to realize that I couldn't get to God on my own. I, I, I couldn't offer him anything that would be enough. But he had offered me something instead, freely giving his son Jesus to die in my place so that I could have life. Christian life wasn't about me presenting all my good deeds, all my good qualities, all my excellencies to God and him saying, oh, well done, good boy. It was about me coming to God on my knees as one needing mercy and receiving it. And I've never known joy like that moment. In a couple of minutes, we will come to the Lord's table and one of the first things we will do is confess our sin. And from the outside, that looks like a, a kind of self-flagellation, like a, a kind of, why would you, why do you do this to yourselves? But it is the path to joy. We come to God as those in need and freely and bounteously because he loves us
he gives us more than we could ever imagine. Let's not be like those people to whom Jesus told that parable. Who hear it and find a way to cover our ears and shut it out and say, no, no, no. Let God's word cut you to the heart. And bring you home. And as we gather around the table in just a minute. Let the bread and the wine speak to you. Of the mercy that is there waiting for all who will come for it.